Well, this morning with our TMAI Spain announcement, I wanted to maintain a missions mindset for our time in the Word. So we'll take just a one-week break from the Epistle of James, which we're normally going through, and instead turn to the short book of Jonah. So I hope you're still there. Keep your Bibles open to Jonah. Why would we turn to Jonah this morning? Jonah was known as a reluctant prophet who notoriously did not have a heart for global missions. He did not want to see the Ninevites saved. And furthermore, when people think of Jonah, all they can think of is the whale. It's Jonah and the whale, a whale of a tail. In fact, I never do this, and I probably never will again. I never preach with props. It's so corny, but I couldn't help it. Noah has a coloring book in the front pew, and I didn't even realize it's Jonah and the whale. They're swimming together peacefully. They look like they're friends. I'll never do that again, by the way. (laughs) But it really misses the whole point of Jonah because first off, it wasn't even a whale. It was a fish, a great fish. And second, the whole episode with the great fish is really just a footnote in Jonah. It's not even close to the main point. What's interesting is there are only two main characters, two named characters in Jonah. Everyone else is anonymous, nameless. Jonah, of course, is one of those. But even Jonah is not the main character in Jonah. And no, it's not the fish. It's God. Jonah is a revelation of the character of God, the sovereignty of God, and the compassion of God. So that his people might know him and reflect his character to the world. Jonah, of course, is a big deal, but he operates like a foil to the character of God, a living object lesson of the wrong heart toward the lost. Instead, it's God's own heart of mercy and compassion that's on full display in Jonah. No one is deserving of God's gracious treatment, Jonah included. But thankfully, God is gracious, compassionate, and merciful And when it's time for his grace to go out, it's always undeserved. It's a fitting lesson for us to learn and be reminded of because we are called to share God's heart of mercy and compassion for the world. And so for this, we'll turn to Jonah. We have a bit of an abbreviated time this morning, but we're still going to try and preach through the whole book of Jonah all at once. I have a friend who tried to do that once, preach through the whole book of Jonah. He did not finish. We will finish. It's just short enough to do so. Jonah is by far the most popular of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, likely because it's, it's not written in a prophetic style, but it's written as historical narrative. It, it reads like a short story. And this story has many lessons, like little gems adorning a crown. Many little lessons come from Jonah. But the main diadem is all about the character of God, the nature of God. And so that's going to be our focus for this morning. And for that, we need to take in the whole book all together. We're going to skip over some of those smaller gems scattered throughout, but the main focus will be the main focus, the character of God. So let's go through Jonah now and just behold the mercy of God so that we may grow in our mercy toward others. The mercy of God that we might grow in our mercy toward others. We'll go with the simple chapter by chapter outline. So chapter one, Jonah protests. Number one, Jonah protests. Look at Jonah one, verse one. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, 
Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And here we're introduced to Jonah, the prophet, but it's not the first time. We're actually first introduced to Jonah in 2 Kings 14. And there we learn that Jonah was a prophet in northern Israel. He's actually the prophet that came right after Elisha. And God used Jonah in that time to communicate a message of peace and prosperity to Israel. This was a time of foreign weakness. All the nations around Israel were kind of weak. And so Israel was going to regain some of its boundaries. But, you know, this was simply an act of God's mercy because Israel herself at that time was still plenty idolatrous, plenty unfaithful and wicked. But as Jonah was used to communicate God's mercy to Israel, surely he became a a hometown hero. He was a patriotic prophet, and it it only stands to reason that everyone loved him because he just said things are going to be good. Things will be fine. And it was true. On this occasion, though, here in Jonah, God has an away mission for Jonah. One that's going to take him to one of Israel's arch rivals, the Assyrians and their great city of Nineveh. Once upon a time, Nineveh was the crown jewel of the vicious Assyrian empire. It's one of the largest cities of the ancient world. It had huge walls, watchtowers all around it. And what really set apart the Assyrians, though, was their propensity for violence. They were a culture of bloodshed, both in their domestic dealings and in their foreign conquests. They were just known for extreme brutality, torture, mutilation, things not really worth repeating. God himself simply says, their wickedness has come up before me. And that was true. And so God was commissioning Jonah to preach a message of judgment upon Nineveh for their wickedness. Now we learn later in chapter three, the message was pretty simple. Jonah was to tell them, yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. They had 40 days to go before God was going to wipe them out. Now you you probably already know the story, how Jonah runs away from this mission. He doesn't go at first to preach. So why is that? Jonah hated the Assyrians being a patriotic Jew. And so he would have been delighted if they were wiped out. So why would he run from this assignment? Well, Jonah knew God too well. He knew God was merciful and compassionate. And he knew implicit in this message was the possibility of repentance and reprieve. Indeed, 40 days is often a period of testing in the Bible. Jonah was so nationalistic, though, he didn't even want the Assyrians to have a chance to repent. He didn't want them even have a window of repentance. He would be satisfied if they all perished and were judged by God. So, as you know, he protests and refuses to go. Verse 3, it says, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. God told Jonah to go northeast to Nineveh. 
several week journey over 550 miles. Instead, he goes the exact opposite, southwest, down to Joppa, a coastal town. And there he was ready to leave everything behind, all to flee God's call. He had enough money, maybe it was all of his money, paid for a place on a ship, going to Tarshish. Where is that? It's another providential uh, coincidence. Most believe Tarshish was on the southern tip of Spain. So he was basically, though, trying to go as far west as you could go in the known world at the time to flee from God's call. So great was his hatred of the Assyrians. Just just let them all perish. They don't need a preacher. But verse 4, it says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Now, this was no ordinary storm. These sailors were used to storms on the Mediterranean. But this storm, as we learn, was supernatural. So much so, their wooden vessel was about to just burst at the seams and they'd all be doomed. So fear entered the hearts of these sailors. Verse 5 says, then the sailors became afraid. And every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking there's a parallel here with Jonah and Jesus, who likewise fell asleep in a ship during a great storm. But not not quite. You see, Jesus was able to sleep in that storm out of complete trust in God and in God's plan and providence. But Jonah is asleep here, we will learn, because he's resigned to death. He doesn't care. He would rather die at sea than go to Nineveh. But the other sailors are not ready to die. And so verse 6, it says, So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. The other sailors were becoming desperate. They discern this was no natural storm. But it was from God. Which God though? They had many. So they cast lots and what do you know? The lot fell on Jonah per God's providential guiding. And Jonah himself knew immediately what was going on here. He says verse 8. Or they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? In verse 9, Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So now Jonah fesses up, like, Yeah, I'm actually a prophet. In Israel, of the God, you know, the the God who made the sea we're in, that God, I'm his prophet. He told me to go here. I didn't want to, so I'm running away. And here I am. 
Jonah knew this storm was on account of his disobedience. He knew it, but he still wasn't willing to turn back and obey. And so verse 11, so they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Jonah knew that once he was gone, the storm would be gone. God was targeting him had sent this vicious storm just to get his attention. But what's so amazing here is that Jonah's hatred and prejudice toward the Assyrians was so strong that he would rather die at sea than just repent and go back to Nineveh. He says, just throw me in. It's it's certain death. But he would rather drown than show them any kindness. What's also amazing is that these sailors prove they have more mercy in their hearts than Jonah because they're not willing to kill Jonah to save themselves. Whereas Jonah would rather die than see thousands of people get saved. And so verse 13 says, however, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord. That's Yahweh. And said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And these were pagan sailors, but now they're all crying out, to Yahweh to save them. And then they acted on Jonah's advice. They threw him overboard. They knew that was a death sentence. They're in the middle of the Mediterranean. He will die. But Jonah was right. I guess he really was a true prophet because he hits the, the water and starts going down. The sea suddenly becomes perfectly calm. This was a miracle. This was actually a sign that God would use in the lives of the sailors. Verse 16 tells us that then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It appears that these sailors become genuine Yahweh worshipers after this. If not eternally, at least temporally, they received the mercy of God and their lives were spared. But what about Jonah? Well, I trust you all know what happens next. Verse 17, to finish the chapter, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, here we get to the part that captures most people's attention with Jonah. It's Jonah and the whale. But like I said before, the Hebrew word for whale is not used. They had a word for whale, but they use the word for fish here. This was a fish, a great fish appointed by God to swallow Jonah. But like I also said, this this incident is incidental in Jonah. The fish takes up just three of the 48 verses. 
It swallows him at the end of chapter one, spits him up at the end of chapter two, and that's about it. But it gets all the attention because it's so unheard of, so out of this world. And for this reason, some people treat the whole book of Jonah as just an allegory, a parable. It's not literal. Others treat it as just purely fairy tale. And you can't really expect people to believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish or that Moses parted the Red Sea or that Jesus walked on water. You can't really believe this, right? And we don't have time for much apologetics in this sermon, but I'll, I'll say a few things because, well, it's the whale in the room, the elephant in the room. We got to talk about it a little bit. Now, for one, Jonah is not written as an allegory or metaphor or parable. This is presented as straightforward historical narrative, which means it's meant to be taken as literal history. How can this be, though? I mean, for Jonah to survive in a fish for three days, I mean, it just sounds impossible, right? Yes, it does sound impossible. Just as impossible as, you know, like Jesus rising from the dead. It's impossible. And the Bible is full of things that seem impossible. And such issues, though, at kind of a high level, really boil down to whether or not the supernatural is possible. And that, in turn, boils down to whether or not God is real. But, you know, if the God of the Bible is true, though, if he really is the all-powerful creator of the universe, then actually believing in miracles is perfectly logical and rational. That's because it would be fully within such a God's power to create a fish large enough to house Jonah for three days. I mean, that's kind of a small thing for the God who made entire planets just by speaking. Jonah, in fact, is filled with the supernatural from the sudden storm to the stilling of the storm instantaneously to the the supernatural plant growth and the worm in chapter four. We'll, We'll get there. I mean, you realize the very fact of Jonah 1.1, where it says God spoke to Jonah, that's just as supernatural as this whole fish, right? Do you buy that? You know, looking for natural explanations here is misguided. I'm like, what kind of a fish can grow big enough to swallow a person? What kind of stomach acids would not be hostile to life? It doesn't really matter because this is not natural. This is supernatural. And the real issue of Jonah's fish is no different than the basic test of faith. I mean, is God, God? Is God, God? If so, well, it's fully within his power and prerogative to supernaturally create such a fish to swallow Jonah just to teach him a lesson. So that's what we make of this. We take it as it is. And as a side note, that's what Jesus thought of this. Because actually in Matthew 12, Verse 40, Jesus referenced Jonah being swallowed by the fish for three days, and Jesus fully took it as literal history. He believed it really happened. Good enough for him, good enough for me. But now we can get back to Jonah and and the actual point here, which like I said, is not the fish. It has nothing to do with the fish. It's instead God, who in an act of mercy appointed that fish to rescue Jonah. And this brings us now to chapter two. And so we find secondly, Jonah prays. Jonah protests. Now chapter two, Jonah prays. We read chapter two for scripture reading this morning. 
And for the sake of time, we won't reread it. But I'll make a few points. Jonah 2, like we said, captures this amazing prayer of distress to God. It came from Jonah's moment of desperation and captures his heart of change. As we learned, Jonah was in open rebellion to God's word and will. He came to the point where he would rather die than see the Assyrians receive even a chance of mercy. And so he's thrown into the sea. And there, verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, breakers and billows passed over me. He was flailing in the raging sea and it Eventually, he started to sink. Verse 5, he says, Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. We don't know if Jonah could swim or not, but it didn't really matter. Eventually, he started to go down. But it was in that moment, with his final breath, that he came to his senses. He realized he had done wrong. His disobedience to the point of death that was a bad choice. This is not worth it. And so, verse 7, he cried out to God while fainting away. It really is just the air in his lungs. His final breath was starting to run out. And it was in that moment that he remembered God and prayed. And God heard him and answered. And God sent that fish to swallow Jonah just in time. You know, most people think the fish was God's judgment. As if being in the belly of the fish for three days was Jonah's punishment for running away. But no, the fish was God's salvation. He was about to drown. But God in mercy sovereignly rescued him. And there, Jonah changed his heart toward God's will. God called him to go to Nineveh. And Jonah realized it's time to go. He says in verse 9, That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Meaning he's going to fulfill his mission. It's up to God. He controls those things. But as for him, he's going to fulfill his mission. He's going to go. He's not gotten over his hatred of the Assyrians just yet. We'll see that. But he was resolved to obey God. And God was not letting him go. And so we come to chapter 3. The fish spits him up. And chapter 3, Jonah preaches. It's the third now. Jonah preaches. Look at Jonah 3, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation, which I'm about to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. God's mercy shines here in giving Jonah a second chance. He didn't deserve that. He he deserved to drown. But this time he responds in faithfulness. He goes on the several week long journey and arrives in the great city of Nineveh. Verse 3, middle. says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. A three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh was a great city. It's great in wickedness, great in pride, also great in size. Some believe this whole three days walk speaks of the circumference of the city, 
It was about, some would say, 60 miles in circumference, huge. The focus here, though, is on Jonah's message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, surely there is more to this message, but it captures the essence. This was a warning, an indictment of evil, that Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, was going to judge them. Now, for Nineveh to be overthrown, the great city, that seemed unthinkable. Now, who would believe that message? But Assyria was in decline, and who knows, maybe it was this foreign God who was to blame. And there are a lot of details here worth exploring if we had more time, but suffice it to say, what happens next is the greater miracle, greater than the whole fish deal, that now we see the, the whole city repents. Verse 5, it says, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. This chapter is, is pretty astonishing. I mean, these were the wicked yet mighty Assyrians. They feared no one. But in response to this ragged stranger, this prophet Jonah from Israel, an entire city from the king down repents. I mean, how'd this happen? Details aren't given. Obviously, some conviction penetrated their hearts. They were convicted of, of the guilt of their violence. They all knew how violent and wicked they were. And they came to believe that this God really was going to judge them. A further explanation is not given. It's also not needed because whatever the case, this is just another miracle of God's mercy. I mean, it didn't even take Jonah the full three days walk. By the way, he's just on day one. He preaches that message and, and they respond. And the king was so serious in leading all the people in repentance that he even had the animals put on the sackcloth. And that was a, a ritual they did back then, an outward symbol of an inner heart change. All the people, verse 7, it says, turned from their wicked ways, the violence in their hands. And they pleaded to the God of Israel for mercy. Again, I'm telling you that that's the greater miracle in Jonah, far greater than the fish, the, the a whole city repenting. And once again, Jesus confirms this was true. This was literal history. Matthew 12, 41, he affirmed that the men of Nineveh truly repented at the preaching of Jonah. They had a true sorrow for their sin, and they really did cry out to God for mercy. Jonah preached that Nineveh would be overthrown, and in a way it was, where God's mercy just turned them upside down and changed them. And then verse 10, it says, when God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented 
concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Their repentance was not just in word, but in deed. A whole generation changed, and so God relented. Now, the fingerprints of God's sovereignty are all over Jonah. From the storm, to the sailors casting lots, to the great fish, to the city repenting. God is directing all of these events. He knew they would repent, and he knew he would relent. But of course, from a human perspective, it still stands that if you repent and believe, you will be saved. And we know this is still true in Christ. Learn that lesson already and take that seriously, that only by repenting of your sins and turning to Christ, crying out for mercy, will you likewise be spared from the wrath of God. For the people of Nineveh, though, this revival was real, but it would be short-lived. We know that their abstaining from wickedness lasted just one generation, kind of like the Jews in, in the conquest. The next generation would turn back to evil. But this was all still part of God's sovereign plan who directs the nations according to his will. In fact, you put, the, you put it all together and you realize that through Jonah's preaching, the Assyrians were spared destruction. They bounced back. Their, their, their empire was revived. And not too much time later, they would be the nation that would conquer northern Israel. Just a half century later, God would use this, these same people, the Assyrians, like a sword in his hand to conquer and discipline his own people, Israel, for their wickedness and for their lack of repentance. The Assyrians would conquer and capture northern Israel in 722 BC. After that, just to fill you in, the Assyrians themselves were later judged. Years later, God raised up the prophet Nahum, another minor prophet, and he prophesied the ruin of Nineveh. And this time, there was no repentance and there was no relenting. And the Nineveh was destroyed by the Babylonians in 612 BC. Today, in modern Iraq, in northern Iraq, you'll find the city of Mosul on the western bank of the Tigris River. And on the eastern bank are two mounds. And buried under the mounds are the ruins of Nineveh. They're still there. And they've named the two mounds. The first mound is called the Mound of Jonah. The second mound is the Mound of Nahum. And together they testify that when God's word is heeded, there is forgiveness and mercy and life. But when not, when people persist in wickedness and rebellion and do not repent, there's only judgment, wrath, and death. God is a righteous judge and savior. You can trust him to do what is right. But as for you, I pray you would call upon his mercy in Christ while it may be found. And today is the day of salvation. Don't wait for tomorrow and then reflect God's mercy by, by showing it to others. This is, after all, the main takeaway from Jonah, that we in our own lives would, would apprehend God's mercy to us. And then we would extend that mercy of God to others. And this is the lesson Jonah himself needed to learn. Because you see, Jonah feared this would happen. He feared the Ninevites would repent 
and then be spared. This was his worst case scenario. He wanted to see them all wiped out. He would have been very happy if they all perished. But in Jonah's dismay, we find God's lesson for him and for us. So we finish with number four, Jonah pouts. Jonah pouts. Now chapter four, look at verse one. This is after the city's revival. It says, but it greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I mean, the depths of Jonah's hatred and prejudice toward the Assyrians is pretty staggering, right? I mean, this, this was a genuine revival where thousands of people truly repented of evil and turned to Yahweh in faith. I mean, wouldn't that make you rejoice? If that happened today in like Las Vegas, for example, wouldn't you be glad? But Jonah was sad and angry. And he basically tells God, like, see, I knew this was going to happen. This is why he fled back in chapter one to try and forestall this fate. Jonah knew God's character, echoing God's self-revelation from Exodus 34. He knew that God is gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. And he's one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah knew that. He actually experienced that because Israel received the same mercy. You know, at the time, Israel was just as wicked as Nineveh, but God showed them mercy too. But this patriotic prophet just couldn't stand the evil Assyrians receiving the same mercy. I mean, they got off too easy. It's just not fair for God to save them. And they were like super wicked. They didn't deserve this. And so Jonah in supreme spiritual pride, he would rather die than live in a world where they were spared. But God says to him, verse four, the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? That's not a rhetorical question. God expects an answer. Jonah has no answer. He knew he was wrong, but God, God is being merciful even with Jonah. And God was going to teach Jonah via another object lesson that he is absolutely free to judge or show mercy as he sees fit. Let's look at verse 5. It says, Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. And as God continues to wield nature to teach a lesson, this time it's a plant that God uses. Jonah leaves town depressed. The journey home is really long. And who knows, God might still do something bad to the city. So he goes east, makes a little camp, builds a makeshift shelter outside town, see what will happen. He's like a child pouting in a corner. 
But seemingly overnight, God causes a plant to grow up and to give Jonah even better shade. It's like his own personal oasis. And just as God appointed a fish, now he appoints a plant to do his bidding. And the result is that Jonah is not just happy, he's extremely happy. Just the relief, his own little oasis to watch what happens. It's nice. I mean, God just used him to lead maybe the greatest revival in all history. That made him sad. But this plant makes him exceedingly happy. You see, like misplaced values. And God's not done with him though. Verse 7. It says, but God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. And God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. You know, again, in in chapter one, God appointed a great fish to do his will in Jonah's life. Now, he appoints a tiny little worm, a fish in the worm. And what a contrast. The worm gets a lot less attention. There's no coloring books with Jonah and the worm. But you realize it's just as supernatural. It's just as supernatural. And this worm had its own little divine mission, which was to destroy that plant, destroy Jonah's shelter, And to kind of seal the deal, God also appoints a scorching east wind, just totally wither the whole thing. So Jonah is without shade. First it was the sea, now it's the desert, and he's again at the point of death. The sun is going to kill him without shelter. And he begs for death. He pouts, he throws a fit, he complains. But God is still not done with him. Verse 10. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And then God says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. Here at the end, God confronts Jonah on his misplaced values. He had more concern for a plant. They had nothing to do with over Nineveh with 120,000 people. He had more compassion for plant life than animal life and human life. You know, Jonah was very sad to see his plant perish, but it didn't trouble him at all. To see Nineveh perish, if it were to happen. He had no compassion for the lost. And so you know what God is getting at here? It's not that it was wrong for Jonah to be concerned for this plant, which he did not create. No, but rather, the point is, should Jonah really have a problem with God having compassion on Nineveh? Which he did create. Which was filled not just with plants, but with thousands of people made in his image, as well as many animals, all the work of his hands. You see, it's only right for God to be very concerned with his creation, especially mankind. 
He, he should be concerned. And despite Nineveh's waywardness, God is free to show mercy on whomever he will. In this, can say, in this case, God's concern was over these 120,000 people who did not know the difference between their right hand and left. Some have taken this as a reference to the number of children in Nineveh. And that's possible, but you know, it appears God is referencing the whole city, which we would take to mean that they were filled with spiritual ignorance. They were morally in the dark, cut off from the revelation of God. It didn't excuse their evil, but here in this case, it was the occasion for God's mercy. But with this final word, this final question, Jonah ends. That's it. That's the ending. It's an abrupt ending that leaves us wondering, did Jonah even learn his lesson? We would have to say yes. Otherwise, we can imagine this book would never have been written. After all, of all the characters in Jonah, I think it's safe to say that he himself received more mercy than anyone. Despite his continual, his own waywardness, God was gracious and slow to anger and merciful with him. And furthermore, by ending with the question, it's almost like we, the reader, are being prompted to provide the final answer. Is God free to have mercy on, and compassion on whom he will? Should God be concerned with his creation? I certainly hope so. Otherwise, we all would be lost. It's only by God's mercy and grace that any are saved. And that's what Jonah needed to remember. That before God, all people are equally undeserving of his favor. You know, from Jonah and Israel to the Assyrians and Nineveh, no one deserves his mercy and grace. Some may be more extreme in sin, but no one is worthy to stand before God on their own. And so first, that should make you thank God that he really is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness. Thank God for that. You should praise God that he's one who relents concerning calamity. Otherwise, we all would be swept away. And sad thing is, Jonah knew this. He knew the character of God like this, but spiritual pride set in where he started to believe that he and Israel, that they were better. They were God's people. They, they deserved his favor, but that pride created walls of division, prejudice, and then hatred. And that hatred led Israel and Jonah to forsake their mission to the nations, which was to be that, that channel, the conduit of God's mercy and revelation. And for us, the church today, we can't make that same mistake. There are some who do, though. More than a few Christians who likewise fall into this form of spiritual pride. And they develop this really cold, hardened heart toward the lost, toward the wicked. Not long ago, I met this guy who was super far right politically, like a, a super hardcore Trump guy. And he espoused a real serious hatred of immigrants, hatred of liberals, hatred of all who believe different. And they're like, we, we certainly hate the spirit of the age and the worldview of wickedness that pervades our society. But, you know, it's only spiritual pride that turns that into a hatred of people that withholds the gospel. We can't let that happen. 
I mean, look, we know that our culture is getting just as wicked as the Assyrians. And it's, it's right to have a holy hatred of the wickedness of the world. But we can't lose a sense of compassion for the lost. Remembering that, you know, essentially we're no better. Especially for us who have a high view of God's sovereignty. We have to remember that at the end of the day, the only thing that fundamentally separates us from them is what? God's grace. That's it. We believe we have that high view of God's grace. That means that's the only thing that truly separates us from them. And apart from God's grace and mercy intervening in our lives, we would be just like them or, or worse. We would still be in the world in its ways. And personally, for example, I was headed down that trajectory. I attended UC Berkeley of all places. And there God saved me and his mercy turned me around freshman year. But apart from that, who knows how far down the road I would have gone. And the same goes for you, wherever you were. You see, that reality, though, and the recognition of the working of God's grace and mercy in our lives, that's meant to humble us. And then it's then meant to fuel our compassion for those who are still lost. No matter how much they may hate us or persecute us, no matter how wicked they may be. As the old saying goes, you know, there but the grace of God go I. And we know that they don't know better. They're lost. They're blind. They're spiritually dead. It doesn't excuse anything, but it just reminds us that we would be too if it were not for the grace and the mercy of God. And so we may still hate their wicked ways, but that must be outmatched by our love for them, for people, souls made in the image of God. And then we need to express that genuine love by doing the most loving thing we can do. And that's not withholding, but giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's their only hope to be saved from the wrath to come. And so don't ever let hatred or prejudice lead you to put a basket over the lamp of the gospel. Instead, you need to be amazed by God's mercy and compassion in your own life. And then let that renew your mercy and compassion for others. This is the lesson of Jonah. Jonah is not about a great storm, a great fish, a great city. It's about a great God. We find Jonah protests, Jonah prays, Jonah preaches, Jonah pouts. But every step of the way, God responds with mercy. He's just a merciful God. And that's true in your own life as well. So remember this morning, God's mercy toward you. And let that spur you on to reflect that mercy to the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we do remember and reflect on your mercy this morning. And we give thanks that your mercies are new every morning. As we need that, apart from your mercy, we would be lost. In, in our sin and our depravity, we all are just as wicked as the Ninevites. Just as filled with sin and evil in our hearts, none worthy to stand before you. We're lost. We were in the darkness. And it's only by your mercy that we saw the light, the light of Christ. You, you sent the Son to be the Savior, to pay for our sins, that we might receive mercy and new life. 
And then in calling us to yourselves, you, you opened our eyes. We're only here because of your mercy. We're only better, so to speak, because of your mercy. May we remember that each and every day. That's going to guard us from, from hating others, from, from hating the lost. It's going gonna, it's gonna to motivate us to, to live lives of mercy. And that's going to be chiefly expressed by giving the gospel. It's the only hope of the world that still lives in darkness. May that characterize our lives here. Let this reminder of your mercy through Jonah convict our own hearts. And that we would not run from your will like him, but just live in it and reflect your mercy to this world. And this we pray. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.